Well, thank you, Bobby, Mindia, and Andrea. What a wonderful time of worship to the Lord. If you can open your scriptures back to Romans 6, verse 1, where we'll be camped today on the first section of chapter 6. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. I'd like to acknowledge um, some theologians and professors and pastors who assisted me um, in putting this together for you today. Romans is a challenging book to preach from, um, and I have learned much in this process. Tom Schreiner, John MacArthur, Leon Morris, F.F. Bruce, to name a few, and of course my professors, Ardell Canaday um, and Pastor Jeff. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we come today. Oh, Lord, we want to understand your word. We want to properly hear it, and we want to practically apply it to our lives. Lord, you teach us that we must know, we must believe, and we must act upon your word. Oh, Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to be here to help us in this process today. Help us properly handle your word, Lord, and apply it to our lives. Lord, that you would be honored by the changes that you make in our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to come to know Jesus better and better and to walk in his likeness, we pray. Amen. In an autobiography of John Newton... John writes, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of the slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. Close quotes. Pastors have often used the story of John Newton's amazing transformation from an ungodly sea captain who did unimaginable, devastating things to a pastor in the Church of England where he dedicated his life to putting sin to death and being obedient to the Lord's calling in his life. It wasn't just amazing grace that John Newton was saved But it's amazing grace that John Newton was kept by Jesus Christ unto the end. That he was sanctified, made more and more daily into the likeness of Christ. Even Paul himself in 1 Timothy 1 states, I thank Christ Jesus for our Lord who has strengthened me because he considers me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy. Paul says that he was saved by grace. A gift of God that results from Christ's death and not of our own effort. In a time when the law for the Jews was seen as the gateway to godliness, through the Torah, Paul corrects them here in Romans, saying that justification is solely based on God's grace alone. 
The Jews had believed God's promises and that God's promises would be fulfilled to them by keeping the Torah, the law. But Paul declares in Romans 5, 20 and 21 that God's purpose in keeping the law was to increase sin in Israel. How can that be? The deliverance from sin would not come through the law, but through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The power of sin has been decisively broken in the lives of believers. We have died in Christ to ourselves, and we are now raised in his likeness to enjoy new life forever. So the question that should be on your mind goes back to Romans 5, 20 and 21. Look at it with me. Romans 5, 20, verses 20 and 21. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This brings up the question that Paul starts with in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And here's his answer. May it never be. How shall we, who died to sin, still live in it? This question has been asked in many forms and in many ways over the centuries. It all stems from a misunderstanding of the term grace. Confusion usually pops out in this way. If everything depends on what God has done, then what does it matter how we live? If God is sovereign and he's following his predetermined will, what does it matter what we do? Paul's answer to that is very emphatic. It matters very much, thank you. Here, Paul proceeds to then argue his case. He asks and answers a series of questions to make his point. Ultimately, the believers can fall into a trap of the more that you sin, the more forgiveness that you require. Hence, the more of God's grace you receive. This is a form of anti-nominalism. It was made popular by a Russian monk, Gregory Rasputin, and it's still very common today, even in our circles as so-called biblical Christians. And Paul addresses it in Romans 3.8, where he says, Why not do evil that good may come? Many believers behave as though the gospel has given them a license to do whatever they like because God's grace covers it all. Hence, we see two ditches in dealing with God's grace, right? There's legalism and there's license. In legalism, they think that they can keep 
all of God's law to the nth degree by perfectionism, that they can somehow earn or justify that God has saved them. And then you have the other ditch of license, that we are saved by God's free grace, and we are. Often you'll hear it termed like this, once saved, always saved. Be careful, that is true, but why? Where does that lead, once saved, always saved? Can we live like the devil and just have fire insurance? Because God is graceful to forgive. The book of Romans is a favorite for believers. Many of you have studied it. Romans chapter 6 plays a pivotal role. Chapters 1 through 3 focus on condemnation, the bad news. Chapters 3 through 5 on justification, being born again, being saved. That's the good news. And then chapters 6 and 7 focus on sanctification. What do we do once we're saved as God makes us into Christ's likeness? We see the principle, the practice, the resistance we have, and the power of sanctification, all in chapter 6. It's amazing. This is all followed by the wonders of chapter 8, God's glorification. Today we're going to start looking at verses 1 through 14 of Romans 6, and it's following your outline there. Sanctification is growing out of our old nature, which is in Adam, into our new nature, which is in Christ. Sanctification is the process by the power of the Holy Spirit that uses sin, suffering, trials, and testing in our lives to cause us to take our eyes off of ourselves and the circumstances and place them back on Christ. This means that we need to seek forgiveness, forgiveness of God by confessing our sin as wayward Christians and placing our faith and trust in the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. We must recognize sin. We must have a contrite heart. James 4, 6 reminds us that God only offers the grace of sanctification to the humble. According to our passage in Romans today, the steps of sanctification in your outline are first, knowing the biblical facts. Second, believing the biblical facts. And third, next Sunday, acting upon the biblical facts. So point one in your outline, knowing the biblical facts. Turn and read with me from Romans 6. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll go through verse 7. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. He who died is freed from sin. Paul begins to address this concept of being dead in sin, focusing on understanding certain facts. Paul wants us to see that we who continue in sin need to know something. One of these things we look for when we look at a passage and we study it is repeated words. In verse 3, we see the phrase, do you not know? Again, in verse 6, knowing this. And in verse 9, knowing that. You think we should know something and pay attention here? What should we know? We must know that knowledge comes before faith. Faith is not just believing. We hear that today, don't we? It's not just believing something. It's believing something that we know to be true. One scholar says it very well. Quotes, Faith must be based upon certainty. There must be a definite knowledge of God's purpose and will. Without that, there can be no true faith. For faith is not a force that we exercise or striving to believe that something shall be, thinking that if we believe hard enough, it will come to pass. That may be positive thinking, but it's certainly not biblical faith. For how can a man appropriate into his life that which he does not understand? Close quotes. So we can see that knowing must include a certain level of understanding. Verses 3 through 5 list three key reasons how believers have died to sin. Look at it. Do you see them? In verse 3, we have been baptized into sin. In verse 4, we have been buried with Christ in his death. And in verse 5, we have been born into his likeness through our resurrection in Christ. So we're going to look deeper at each of these, starting with verse 3. In verse 3, we are baptized into Christ, into his death. First, we should know that we are believers. And if we are believers, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Look at it in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been baptized into Christ. The fact is that he, we, are in Christ, in his entire salvation. That is to say, in accordance with Romans 3.24, that the believer is justified. He is saved on the basis of his union with Christ in Christ's death. So, there are two elements here with baptism. First, we are baptized into Jesus. We are baptized into Jesus. Second, through that baptism into Jesus, we are then baptized into his death. Now, the word baptism here in verse 3 refers to salvation or spiritual baptism. 
And we often picture it with the practice of water baptism. But this is salvation itself. At the moment that we were converted, at the moment we were saved and we were born again, born again, Now, don't confuse spirit baptism here in this passage with the practice of water baptism. Water baptism is a unique representation of identification with Jesus Christ. It is a public symbol of our faith in God and dying with Christ. In the early church, being born again was almost immediately followed by the practice of water baptism. They weren't separated like we do today. The water baptism is a physical, public ordination. It's it's a picture of a proclamation of the reality of the spiritual baptism inside of you that's already occurred. So the significance of being baptized into Christ Jesus here in verse 3 is that those who are spirit-baptized are united As one with Jesus Christ. We are in him. We are saved. We are born again. We are united with him. And thus we have died to sin. Then we are to live like Christ. This means that sin should no longer reign in our mortal body. It'll be present but we are no longer to be in the habit of sin because we've been transformed by the Spirit through Spirit baptism into Jesus Christ. So we're not only spiritually baptized into Christ, but we are spiritually baptized into His death, which is the second principle that Paul emphasizes. And one scholar states it this way, quotes, Baptism thus seals the believer's exodus his deliverance from sin, and his entry into a new life of freedom. Are you feeling a life of freedom today? Or do you feel like you are still in bondage to sin? Second in your outline, we are buried with Christ into his death. Look at it in verse 4. Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Burial here sets the seal on our death in Christ Jesus. Paul includes a picture of burial here, since burial is proof of death. As one scholar puts it, quotes, Burial sets the seal on death, so the Christian's baptism is a token burial in which the old order of life in sin comes to an end to be replaced by the new order of life in Christ. Think about it. When family and friends participate in funeral services, the most sorrowful, sad moment is the graveside service. When our loved ones are buried, a headstone is placed. The reality of death overwhelms us. There's a slow deliberate motion of the casket being lowered down into the grave. The descent is accompanied by mournful sounds as the dirt and the soil 
cascades onto the lid. With each thud and thump, it reverberates through our hearts that the bereaved is now dead. Finished. Complete. It's a stark reminder of the finality of earthly death. There are sounds of sobbing, whispered goodbyes. It's so hard. The death of a loved one is ratified, ratified and sealed by the burial. So it was with Jesus. When he was buried and that rock was rolled in front of the tomb, it was closed, it was over, it was done, and the disciples turned away. So it is with death in which we die with Jesus through baptism. One scholar summarizes it well. Quotes, It was a death that was ratified and sealed by burial. Altogether an unambiguous death to sin and our previous way of life. Close quotes. But thankfully, verse 4 doesn't end there, right? Look at it with me. Verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So we can see a purpose statement here. The purpose or the reason for being buried with Christ through baptism in death was so that we might walk in newness of life with Christ. So God gloriously uses His power to save, to raise His Son from the dead, that we, you and I, might walk and be alive in Christ. It's a new life. Our old life is dead. This newness of life is a reference to our moral and our spiritual life. The idea of walk here is what we do each and every day as we live out our lives here on this side of the cross. That we would have the quality of conduct in ourselves that represents and characterizes Jesus Christ. How are you doing with that? There's a contrast clearly here between our old way and the new way. The new way is superior to the old way. We were under Adam and we are now under Christ. We were selfish and sinful and now we know a better way. We've been transcended. This new way of life is but a foretaste for the final reward that's going to come when we see Christ face to face. Paul is pointing out that there should be a new obedience in our character. That we should walk, skip through life now with our eyes focused on him rather than focused on the death and the burial and our sin. We are focused on the resurrection. And we see that in verse 5. Look at it with me. Verse 5. For if we have become united with him, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. In this portion of the passage, we can see that resurrection here is the crescendo of death. It's, it's the primary emphasis of Romans 6, 1 through 4. 
We need to know we have been resurrected. Why? Galatians 2.20 tells us why. It tells us that the believer lives his life through union with Jesus and his resurrection. Paul's primary argument here is that as believers, we are no longer to live our life as our previous old man, old woman, old teen, old grandparent. Instead, we are to live our life in the new man, the new woman, the new teen, the new grandparent. We have been resurrected with Christ. We are to live apart from pursuing sin. In Christ, the believer experiences the fruits of resurrection by having increased victory over sin. Are you having any victory over sin? I believe you are. Sometimes we need to just recognize that. One scholar gives us this illustration. Quotes, The grapes upon a vine are not merely a living token that the tree is a vine and is alive. They are the product for which the vine exists. It is a thing not to be thought of that the sinner should accept justification and live to himself. It is a moral contradiction of the deepest kind and cannot be entertained without betraying an initial error in the man's whole spiritual creed. Close quotes. If we have received reconciliation through our death in Christ, we are now to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, not just separated from sin, but we are to be wholly separated unto God and walk in Christ's likeness. Now, having looked at the ways that believers have died to sin, we were baptized into Christ into his death, we were buried with Christ in his death, and we were born into the likeness through the resurrection in Christ. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes further in verse 6. Look at it with me. Verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that the old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Verse 6 tells us that our old self has been crucified. Yes, they use the term crucified there. Paul's trying to make a point. There's no coming back from that. We have been crucified with Christ. Our old self has. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are not that person anymore. In essence, Paul now restates verses 3 through 5, all through the picture of crucifixion, that we are to put off the old man, Adam, and put on the new man, Jesus Christ. As one scholar puts it, quotes, believers have died to sin in that our old person was crucified together with him. Ephesians 2.15, Jesus specifically identifies us as the new person in whom Jesus, excuse me, the one new person in whom both the Jews and the Gentiles are reconciled to one another. 
We are a new person, a new people, the people of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 10 through 11, takes this concept a bit further. It's the new person is to be identified with Christ rather than ethnic classes or religious distinctions. Hence, the old person no longer belongs to their former life, but they are to put on the new person in Christ. So the purpose of our crucifixion with Christ is for our body of sin to be put to death, to be destroyed, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, believers have been freed completely from their slavery to sin. Do not believe the lie of the devil and the world and the flesh. You are no longer slaves to sin. You know better. You can do better, and the Holy Spirit empowers you to make godly choices. Put off the old man and put on the new man in Christ's likeness. Now, for some of you, this brings up the question, if I've died to sin, why is it that I still sin as a believer? Why do I even have to deal with that at all? I'm not a slave to it, I've died to it. Well... It's important here to understand what Paul is saying in these passages and what Paul is not saying in these passages. The easiest way to explain it is this concept of already but not yet, applied to salvation. Believers are enabled now to walk in the newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. We are no longer slaves to sin in our former condition. When we were slaves, we could not choose right. But we are no longer slaves. We are no longer that old person. Further, we are commanded in Ephesians 4 to put off the old person and put on the new person. The new person is our reality in Christ. The new person is freed from being a slave or a prisoner to sin. Before, we were enemies of God. We were in habitual sin against him. In our natural fallen state, we were unable, unable to resist sin. Therefore, we were slaves. That's why that picture is used. That's why that term is. We were slaves to our sin nature. The new self, as we are now, we are no longer slaves to sin. But we are freed to live righteously. This means we can now choose whether we are going to sin or respond in a righteous way to a trial, a temptation, a suffering. The already but not yet means that we will often fail to choose righteously, and we will fall into sin. However, believers are not to be in a pattern of sinful behavior that becomes a habit that leads to death. The not yet is when we are face-to-face with Jesus Christ, when we're actually in his presence, when we leave this earth or Jesus comes back and we see him face-to-face, there will be no sin. Sin will flee from us. Ah, then we won't be tempted anymore, for we will be like Christ when we see him. Amen? What amazing glory that is. I can't wait. Now, I know this is a lot this morning to take in, but let's go back to a theologian and a pastor who says it so well, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has an illustration for us that just really struck me. 
He pictures two adjoining fields, one owned by Satan and one owned by God and separated by a road that runs through them. Before salvation, a person lives in Satan's field and is totally subjected to his jurisdiction. After salvation, a person works in God's field, now subject to only God's jurisdiction. As he, the believer, plows the new field, keeping his eyes on Christ and plowing and working for the fruit of righteousness, the believer often gets distracted and even controlled by sin. Sin of Satan. In the other field, our former master, who seeks to entice him back to his old sinful ways. Satan often succeeds in temporarily prying our eyes off of the plow and off of Christ, away from our new master to the old way of life. But Satan is powerless to draw us back into his field across that road to that old field of sin and death. So the main point we see in verse 6 is that those who have been crucified with Christ are free from being slaves to sin. Not that we are free from the power and presence of sin. Verse 7 then concludes with this proposition. For he who has died is freed from sin. Think about it from a human death perspective. Once we physically die, regardless of how much we owe or how much we think the world owes us, we are released from all worldly possessions and obligations, right? We can't take anything with us. Being crucified in Jesus atones for all of our sins. We are justified from the penalty of condemnation and we receive Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to our account. We get Christ's righteousness. Having Christ's righteousness sets our course now to be alive in Christ Jesus, as we see described in verses 8 through 10, which brings us to our second and final point today, believing the biblical facts, being alive in Christ. So knowing these facts is not just about knowing that we've been baptized into Jesus, that we've died with him and we've buried with him, but that we also have been resurrected with him. So what are we resurrected to do? And that's the point of verses 8 through 10. The emphasis shifts from dying to Christ to living with him. Think about it. If we've died with Christ, how much more should we not now live with him? This is a personal and an inward commitment to walk in a Christ-like manner. Here, the Christian's moral life and spiritual life is the primary focus. Death pays all debts. So those who have died with Christ have their slate wiped clean. They are ready to begin their new life with Christ. This is the newness of life. Faith is the means of living. Faith is the means of living. Colossians 2.6 states, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. 
There is human responsibility in the sanctification process. We are commanded to daily appropriate the facts of God's word into our personal life. How are you doing with that? How are you doing and applying what you are reading in your devotions to your daily life? You need some encouragement this morning? I know I do. This is the devotional life of prayer and eager study of God's word. Once we personally appropriate the teachings of God's word to our life, his faith through the power of the Holy Spirit will change us at the heart level. The word of God cleanses our motives and it makes us more pure in our morality and our behavior. In essence, it causes us to have the right attitude about sin and to be submissive to putting off self and putting on Christ. So let's take a look at verses 8 through 10 together. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. The three verses here then are but a summary of what Paul has just taught us regarding death to sin and new to life. Paul has covered this three times. Do you think it's important? Do you think that we struggle in getting this? We do. Paul assures us that we also will live with Christ as we are pointed to keeping God's promise, and God will keep us to the end. Eternity in heaven with God. But there is context here of holy living. This suggests in the already but not yet of sanctification that we will face a constant battle with the sin um, in the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you feel that today? Everywhere you turn is a constant battle. However, we can take it to the bank that as Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again, for death is no longer master over him, we too will not die. If you are saved here today, you will be kept until the end, and you will be with Christ Jesus. We know the end of the battle. Likewise, sin is no longer master over us. Even though it's present in us and it's all around us, it taunts us to choose selflessness over godliness. Rest assured, though, that the death of Jesus died, that he died once and for all for our sins, broke the mastery of sin. One scholar states it this way, quotes, they may regard themselves to be completely justified, but not completely sanctified. We are saved and in Christ, amen? but we are being saved and kept and transformed into Christ's likeness day in and day out. And that progressive sanctification looks like two steps forward and three steps back often. But we keep focused on Christ and we plow in his field. Our salvation has not been fully worked out and it won't be until we see Christ face to face. Already we have a heavenly blessing that's being renewed by the Holy Spirit day by day. 
We are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. We are increasing both in love for God and others through the knowledge of God in His Word. This is only possible because of the person and the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. From this passage in Romans 6, we can see that we have really but one response to the grace of God in salvation. Despite the teachings of free grace views, we are not saved so that we can go on sinning and living a life with our eyes turned toward ourself. Justification is not fire insurance so that we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. We cannot continue to sin so that God's grace sounds even more glorious in our testimonies. We are truly born again. It is a work of God alone who has saved us and has given us a new heart in Jesus Christ, a new heart that longs to work in the field owned by God rather than being enticed by the field owned by Satan. We are now subject to God's jurisdiction, not Satan's. We are called to be dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 6 will continue with this theme where the indicatives become imperatives. In other words, the questioning of back and forth of Paul now become clear commands in Scripture of how we are to respond because of what Paul has laid out in the first part of chapter 6. There's an old adage that is helpful in this relationship. Between what we are to do and what we actually do. And it is this. Become what you are. Become what you are. You are alive to God. Now live like it. If you are hearing some of this today, which seems like the first time, then I implore you to listen to the Spirit of God through His Word. Come to Jesus Christ. Accept His free offer of grace. There is nothing that you can do to add or take away from your own salvation. Simply come to Him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I know what I deserve. Please change my heart. I don't want to be this way. I trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I don't understand it all, but God, save me. Cover my sin and make me alive in Jesus Christ. Do it today. Don't wait for the opposite of Christ's righteousness is God's condemnation. If you are a believer here today, you're probably struggling in your walk with Christ. It's time again to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Hebrews 12.2 says that the same sovereign Lord who is the author of the Christian faith is also the perfecter of the Christian faith. Ephesians 2.10 and Romans 8.29 remind us that the believer is the workmanship of God, predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to, one, acknowledge sin. Make it a big deal, because it is. 
Second, to participate in the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification in your life. It is a big deal. We are constantly called to go back to be Bereans of God's Word. Like John Newton, we are called by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to be preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed. We are appointed to know, believe, and appropriate the reality of our union in Christ. We do this first and foremost to give God glory and to be the salt and light in this dark and dying world. We pray that all God's children would come to know the amazing grace of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, so much there, Lord. Help us to apply and understand these principles to our lives, Lord, that we would walk in a way that would be honoring to you, Lord, that we would bend the knee in salvation if we don't know you, Lord. May this be the day that we would put to death our sin in our lives that we've ignored for so long and they've become a pet habit maybe. Oh, Lord, help us to be the light. Help us to be the salt in this dark and dying world around us, in our communities, in our families, in this world and across the nations. Lord, I think of those that in our families, um, in our extended families, in our friends who are suffering with illness today, struggling with job decisions or job losses, relationships that are broken and hurting, And Lord, those that don't know you, oh Lord, it breaks our hearts for you are the only comfort and peace in all those things. Oh Lord, watch over them. Use your word, use us to speak your truth into their life through these challenges. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to put off and to put on. Put away the old self and put on the new self and be alive in Christ. May our eyes be on the field of God. May we plow straight forward, looking at Christ, who we will see soon face to face. Oh, Lord, we pray all this in your name, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through our one and only Jesus Christ, who redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen.